Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So there's part of your body that either you give a lot of thought to or not much thought to. The one thing that you don't do very much is look at it. It's your butt. It's your backside, your derriere. I don't know. You pick your term. Uh, but we're going to do an entire show about that part of your body and that part of everybody else's body and how that uh, part of the body has been evaluated, venerated, exalted, or despised over thousands and thousands of years of human history, dating back to the Venus of Willendorf 30,000 years ago. So uh, we'll be talking to the author of Butts, a backstory. Uh, that's Heather Radke. We'll be talking to people who kind of create butts for people who don't have them. We'll talk about the hazards of the BBL, the Brazilian butt lift. Don't get one is the short answer. More after the news. Today's show is about butts. So we could have begun with, you know, Sir Mix-a-Lot. We could have begun with backfield in motion. I'm going to have to penalize you. We prefer to begin on a somewhat more classy note. (laughs) So, uh, and Irving Berlin, obviously, is not writing uh, about butts, nor is Louis Armstrong singing about them. Although, who knows? They may have had some very interesting conversations. Off mic. All right. So the occasion partly for doing this show today is a book by Heather Radke. Uh, our first guest today is called Butts, a backstory. Uh, and it is very much an overview uh, of the, the history of the human butt. Or maybe, Heather Radke, 50% of the history of the human butt. We really are concerned today, it does appear, with women's butts far more than we are with men's. And maybe that's an interesting place to start, right? Because, I don't know. Like Brad Pitt kind of got famous when people saw his butt in Thelma and Louise. It's not like people aren't interested. In, and, and Justin Bieber's butt is like, you know, crashing Instagram at any given moment. It's not like there's no interest in men's butts. So well, why, why focus as much as you did on, on the, the female side of this? Hi, Colin. Thanks so much Hi. for having me. Um, well, that's a good question. I guess, um, first of all, I'm a woman and I, I think my interest in this topic really came because of experiences I had with my own body and kind of feelings I had about my own body and how they had changed over the course of time. So maybe that's the most straightforward answer is that my interest was essentially about myself. But you're absolutely right that there is a lot to say about men's butts. And there actually has been kind of more written about men's butts than women's butts. So um I yeah, I just decided to to take on only half of of the population <laughs> about this topic that's actually so universal. It's like in some ways it's it's a 
it's one of the most universal universal topics that we could we could take on. Well, it might be time to get into talks with your publisher about a sequel. You know, yeah. I mean, like... <laughs> well, that can be for someone else. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yes, this uh, book is it's like 18 to 21 percent memoir, I think. You know, there's uh, stuff about you, stuff about your mom, uh, what your bodies were like. And this is somewhat occasioned or triggered by, um, at least early on, uh, a way in which you were used, I think, in high school uh, among some kind of sports team, members of a sports team. I've forgotten which team it was. Uh, cross country. As a, <laughs> cross country as kind of a reference point. So we might as well begin there. Yeah. So I, I grew up, I'm a white woman. I grew up in the suburb of Lansing, Michigan in the early 90s. I was in middle school and, um, and yeah, I, I, I had a big butt, or at least I thought I had a big butt, but I kind of didn't think anyone had totally noticed until I, um, a friend of mine had told me that she was at cross country practice and another, another girl had, had said something along the lines of like, I feel like I'm getting fat, but at least I don't have a big butt like Heather's. And, you know, this is the kind of moment that I think is just honestly so common for, uh, all people, this kind of like light, shamey tease that like probably we've all participated in on both sides of but you know it made me super self-conscious about about this part of my body um probably like I'd already kind of been primed to think that way because my mom never liked her butt and I'd been hearing about it since I was a, a little kid but I was really interested in that kind of moment of what I call mundane shame like everyday shame that we all carry about about our bodies and I wanted to kind of investigate it and research it and figure out why why I felt bad about my butt, basically, and then why that feeling changed over the course of the next 20, 30 years. And I think, you know, some of the change comes from also just understanding that there's this pendulum, right? The, a pendulum that starts... I don't know, 25, 30,000 years ago with the Venus of Willendorf, you have a sort of Paleolithic or Neolithic people where resources are scarce. Reproduction is an important function, but also is somewhat dangerous and tricky one. So you have this kind of exaltation of, uh, uh, and it shows up in figurines like the Venus of Willendorf, of big butt, big belly, pendulous breasts. Uh, That's the way uh, we want women to look because it's the way the species is going to survive, and that's kind of a big deal these days. So, I mean, and and it kind of tick-tocks back and forth like that across history, Heather. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think what beauty is and what kind of body is beautiful, um, it, it, you know, it changes over and over again. I mean, this is something I think that we all know very well. And I think one of the the questions I really had is, it's actually really strange that a body part and a body type can go in and out of fashion. And I, I was wondering, you know, why did, why does that happen and why has that happened and how does it affect the, the, you know, the people who have these bodies, you know, women or people who identify as women. And, and partly I just think it's because I I found it when I really started to think about it, I just found it so bizarre, like that a, a body part could become fashionable and the way that, you know, in some sense, big butts have become um, more part of a, a mainstream ideal of fashion over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, and we'll get to that. And I think there's sort of two things happening at once, and they, they get conflated pretty easily. One of them is just the ideal body type 
changes. And I mean, mm-hmm. just, just to take it into modernity, you know, we go from sort of Victorian, post-Victorian uh, enjoyment of a somewhat fuller figure. Uh, then, as you document very well in your book, uh, particularly through the work of Gordon Conway, you get the flapper. Uh, you get, a, you know, a thinner person who's wearing a particular type of fashion that accentuates that thinness uh, and almost boy-like figure. And, and it kind of goes back and forth. I mean, the same the same pendulum swing, you can sort of see it post-World War II. There's, a, once again, an enjoyment of our ample resources. And so you get uh, women who are more full-figured. You get those 50s Bible movies where the women have these big conical breasts that look like they're mm. missiles or something like that, you know. And then you go from that to, by 1966, Twiggy and Mia Farrow are the embodiment of high fashion. Twiggy's like the face of 66. Farrow has Rosemary's Baby in 68. Uh, Frank Sinatra latches on <laughs> to Mia Farrow. Uh, Ava Gardner famously said, I always knew Frank would wind up with a boy. Uh, and and there's this kind of way in which that's just body type, right? That's not butt. I mean, there's it's it, you, you have to work a little bit more to isolate the butt. Yeah, it, it's, you know, I, I there was a, a, a thing I had been working on for a while was like, should I include more of that kind of 50s bombshell in this book? Because as you say, like I kind of look through these eras of history starting in some senses, starting in the ancient past, but really starting in the early 19th century and kind of look at how these how the the butt kind of changes like the ideal butt changes over those decades and but in the 50s it really is like as you say it's like the breasts as much as the butt it's like an hourglass figure and to some extent i would also say like this thing happens in about 19 i don't know 15 between 1915 and 1925 where where there's a, a pretty radical shift in what the ideal body is that that goes from this kind of victorian body that's created by undergarments like the bustle and the corset and the petticoat and into this new type of body that's created really by diet and exercise. It's, it's very thin. And although you're right that there's like a oscillating pendulum of like a little bit more curvy, a little bit thinner, we're still all kind of living inside this thing that was more or less created by Paul Perret and Coco Chanel in the twenties and the flapper ideal of like a relatively thin woman who sometimes has a few kind of lumps thrown into the thinness, but we're, it's still a very thin ideal. And we, you know, that ideal has, has maintained through the last century. Right. There's what's ideal. And then there's also what's normal. And one of the more fascinating chapters in your book, I just hadn't known anything about this, uh, is this uh, idea of uh, these figures, Norma and Norman, and this very curious figure. I think she's a chemist uh, named Ruth O'Brien, who who measures thousands of women. And the whole goal is to sort of say, well, we've got to st- we need a kind of a baseline for normal. The fashion industry needs that. They got to know how to make clothes that most people can wear or most people are going to want to wear. Uh, and so we need to know what normal is. So pick up the story from there. This is really interesting. Yeah. So Ruth O'Brien, she's this chemist. She's working for the government and she's trying to solve a problem that like I think most people really even today recognize as a problem and she recognized was a problem then, which was that there were there was no standardized sizing for women's clothes. The garment industry had been trying for 100 years to figure out a way to make women's clothes the way that they had started to make men's clothes where you could buy them off the rack in sizes. And, you know, men's clothes are generally, they use inches to tell, you know, it's like you have a 28 inch waist or whatever, and that's how you can know what clothes are going to fit you. And women's clothes had never been able, they'd never been able to figure out a way for them to work like that. So Ruth O'Brien has this idea, which seems relatively obvious, which is like, let's measure a bunch of women and then we'll create standardized sizes. So she 
she does that. She sends out these measuring squads all over the country and measures thousands of women. Um, but she decides to throw out all the data from non-white women. Um, and then she uses the, the remaining data to create a sizing scheme. And, you know, there's kind of two ways the story goes. One way that sizing scheme is still in some ways the basis of the way we do sizing now, although that's changed many times over and it would you'd be sort of hard pressed to find exactly how that data relates to the sizes we have now. But also these two eugenicists, uh, interestingly, a gynecologist and a sculptor, like classic combo there, I mm-hmm. guess, um, they they use her data to create these statues called Norma and Norman. And the idea is to show Americans what the most normal girl and boy are supposed to look like so that they can then, you know, sort of strive for this ultimate ideal of normalcy. And they they design these statues and they are on display at the um, American Museum of Natural History here in New York. And then eventually they end up in Cleveland um, where the Cleveland Health and Hygiene Museum displays them. And they actually run a contest where they try to find a, a person who, a, a woman who actually has the same sizes as that statue, which, you know, they look far and wide across the Cleveland area and they can't find anybody who is actually the most normal girl in Cleveland. Um, they found somebody who's like sort of close and then she wins the contest. But I think the the lesson of the, of Norma is in this way, like the way the ideal of nor like that normal is actually an ideal and it's also an unattainable ideal like so many of these others and you know these eugenicists were trying to perpetuate a really specific idea of how our bodies should be and like what constitutes a a good and correct body like so many other you know the fashion industry and so many other other kind of nodes of power that we see throughout history so the fashion industry, since you mentioned them, I mean, if you are a man and you pay any attention to the women around you, you know that the two things that they do not look forward to having to shop for are bathing suits and jeans. Uh, we can set bathing suits aside for a second. But jeans, that's specifically a butt problem, right? Uh, and there's yeah. a way in which it's just like really hard to find jeans that fit and fit the right way. And you would think, given our level of technological attainment, that this would be a solved problem at this point. So from what you've been able to figure out, why isn't it a solved problem? Well, one thing about it is it is a hard problem. I mean, I I am, um, you know, I was kind of fascinated by this. I kept like calling back this expert that I was interviewing about the history of size. And I was like, I just don't get it. Like, isn't it in the fashion industry's best interest to like solve this problem? Like, I can't tell you how much I would pay for a pair of jeans that would, you know, fit me really well. And the problem is actually just that our bodies are so diverse and strange and particular that it's really hard to create a sizing system that will actually work for most people. So, you know, they're the way it works is that they have they have one person who, her, you know, in it, the one the version of this that I interviewed, her name was Natasha. She's a fit model. They a lot of jeans companies use her um, as the person who they make the jeans fit. She's a specific size. And then they use mathematical formulas to make the jeans in all the other sizes. So like if she's a size six, they like, you know, add a little here and subtract a little there. And then that's a size eight. And then they kind of blow it up to 10 and 12 and um, et cetera, et cetera. So 
you can sort of see how that might not <laughs> exactly work that well. Um, and, you know, I think it's, I, I don't know, for me, I learning that was like kind of profound because as you say, like, I'm, I am one of the many women who goes into the dressing room and is, is, you know, trying to find jeans and just feeling terrible that they, none of them fit. But now I kind of go in the dressing room and try on a pair of jeans. And at the very least, I know that it's not really supposed to fit, you know, that the, the people who make the jeans don't really expect that, that any particular size is going to fit my body correctly. It's like going to sort of do the job. And that's as, that's about as good as we can get. Right. If I were a woman in that situation, I think I would be talking possibly audibly to Natasha Wagner. The person you're talking about is kind of the Chuck Yeager of jeans, except that, you know, I mean, we don't have to all sit in Chuck Yeager's cockpit and you guys all have to sort of deal with. I'd be mad at Natasha Wagner. We have to sit in her jeans. Yeah. But I mean, Natasha's lovely and, you know, it's like she's got a cool and interesting job. And it's I mean, but she's probably the only person who can like walk into a dressing room and try on a pair of jeans and be like, yeah, these fit exactly right. So we've managed to have a uh, you know ten minute or so conversation about butts and not talk too much about race, but the race and butts are all mixed up together, uh, and it goes back quite a distance. Um, and so let's start it, although this isn't really where it starts, but we might as well uh, start it uh, by talking about Sarah Bartman, uh, sometimes known as the hot and taut Venus. Uh, so explain who she was. Now, Sarah Bartman was an indigenous South African woman who uh, grew up just outside of Cape Town. And in the early 19th century, um, two men brought her up from South Africa and displayed her as a freak show in London because she had a big butt. Um, and then there was a trial, a very famous trial, about whether or not she was enslaved or free. Um, and then and she was deemed to be free and then was continued to display throughout London, throughout the UK, and then in Paris, where she ultimately died. And then after she died, there a, a very well-known French scientist named George Cuvier dissected her body and um, wrote an autopsy report that... Uh, that was used by him and by many other scientists in the 19th and 20th centuries as supposed evidence for racial hierarchies and racial stereotypes. So it's out of that autopsy report that we sort of get the codification of a stereotype of the big butted hypersexual black woman. And um, the link between hypersexuality and big buttedness, you see it throughout the 19th century and it's always, it's almost always racialized. Um, and then, you know, Cuvier also, he displayed parts of her body as well as a, a cast of her body in his museum in Paris. And her body was actually on display in Paris into the 1980s. So it's a history that can seem very old, but is actually, um, you know, definitely comes comes into my lifetime. And the stereotypes that Cuvier helped to, to codify, you know, those those live very, very much today. So I was going to wait until the second segment to bring this up, but I think we I think we can naturally go from where we are there to to a more recent time, and mm-hmm. so if we think about the period, I think there's sort of an interesting stretch of time from 1985 to 1995, uh, and so in 1985, you've once again got you know, some idealization of, of fitness. Uh, I'm thinking there was the John Travolta movie in 1985 called Perfect, 
Uh, oh, yeah. I watched that movie as part of this research. Yeah, that's right. So people kind of go into the movie. gym. Jamie Lee Curtis yeah. is this uh, um, athlete and now gym instructor, and she's perfect. And I mean, you can find lots and lots of evidence of that. And you you've got um, Kate Moss. You talk about her. Her look is kind of her- called heroin chic, uh, not the good kind of heroin, the bad kind of heroin. Uh, mm-hmm. And you've got um, you've got Tom Wolf starts writing about the so-called social X-rays. You know that uh, there in, in Bonfire of the Vanities, he talks about the women who show up in really fancy New York parties and they look like x-rays. That is, there's almost no flesh on their bodies. You know, they have their skin stretched across their skulls and stuff like that. So you've got that. And then riding into that, uh, or, or the, is, there's another storm coming in another direction. And it really is this time coming from the black community and specifically from the hip-hop community. Uh, we get Sir Mix-a-Lot. We get a lot of other things that are kind of like Sir, Sir Mix-a-Lot. Um, and so it seems as though this is arguably black people kind of taking uh, hold of uh, and trying to reappropriate something that had been used against them. Um, And so say a little bit about how you perceive all that, that suddenly there is a conversation that's very positive about big butts. Uh, It may or may not be coming too much from men, but, but how does that sort of work for you? Yeah. So, you know, I talked to a bunch of scholars about this. There's a lot of people who have studied this period because it's a really interesting period in the history of American culture. And, you know, in the 90s, as hip hop becomes the basically the dominant form of music, a lot of people say by the, by 2000, you know, hip hop has replaced rock as the major form of American music. Um, the aesthetics of hip hop, which you, were very, you know, vi- like literally was super visible on MTV, um, become they sort of become part of the mainstream beauty ideals and part of the aesthetics of hip hop are, you know, big butts like Sir Mix-a-Lot is like kind of the ultimate example of that. Right. But the consumers of hip hop aren't, are, you know, largely actually white people in the nineties. I mean, there's some debate about that too, but um, there's kind of two things happening. There's a, there's a, a burgeoning interest in, amongst white people of black culture. And then there's also some changing demographics as, as the U S is becoming less white. So this definitely changes the beauty ideals in the nineties. And like you, it, the kind of moment of change that a lot of people point to is 1997 when Jennifer Lopez is in this movie out of sight, the Steven Soderbergh movie. And you can really just like, if you look at like the tabloids from those years, it's like all of a sudden, all these magazines, all they can ask Jennifer Lopez about is her butt. You know, it's like she's been in this movie. She's getting more and more famous. And every question that she's asked is like, tell me about your butt, which is like also a very weird interview question. because like, what are you supposed to say about that? Um, and that's like, you know, some scholars call that moment like the crossover butt moment. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of I feel like like some a lot of people point to Kim Kardashian as the as the kind of beginning of this like embrace of the big butt, but really like you have to look to 1997 to see that. Yeah, I think it's all happening in the 90s, and and I'm not making any particular. I, I should say that our theme music, which we almost never use anymore, uh, comes from out of, out of sight. So um, oh, so that's our little connection. But um, yeah. I make no particular case for Sir Mix a Lot, but I do want to say that yeah. So you look at the videos, and there it's very much the male gaze, and it fails the Bechdel test, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But he's not saying nothing. Here. I'm tired of magazines saying flat butts are the thing. Take the average black man and ask him that. 
she gotta pack much bags. So, fellas, yeah. fellas, yeah. Cause your girlfriend got your butt. Hell yeah. Shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it. Shake that healthy butt. Baby got ballet. So he's making, I think, two points that we've sort of you know, played around with a little bit here. One of them is, where's the message coming from? It's coming from magazines that are, once again, exalting the, the flat butt. Um, and he, at the end of that little uh, bit there, he, he uses the word healthy. Um, you know, Kate Moss is not a healthy-looking person. <laughs> right, you know? right. Uh, Cardi B is a much healthier-looking person than Kate Moss. She comes along a little bit later. Or J-Lo is a healthier-looking person. Uh, so I, I don't know. I give Sir Mix-a-Lot a little bit of credit for... It wasn't just this kind of exploitive thing, right? He was trying to make a social point. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, he says as much in, in many, many interviews. I mean, I think he, he is trying to say, like, this beauty ideal is a white beauty ideal, and it has nothing to do with the kind of bodies that I think are sexy or that my friends think are sexy. And, yeah, he definitely, you know, says to, that it's an unhealthy beauty ideal. I mean, you know, he does a lot of other things too. He like talks about like how women need to do side bends and sit-ups and, you know, he's not like, I mean, I think we can sort of give him credit for what he's trying to do, which is to push a new ideal while also sort of being able to say that it's still an ideal that like is coming from men and has, um, you know, is limiting because any kind of ideal is going to leave some people out even as it brings some people in. Right. And, you know, you're, you're, once again, the question is, whose ideals still are we working with? And it does seem like we're still working with men's ideas of ideals. Uh, and the, I'm going to show this in a white source uh, this time. Uh, also from the mid-90s, 1995, uh, Al Pacino plays a detective named Vince Hanna. He's talking to a perp, uh, Hank Azaria, I think is the character that he's talking to. I just want to get mixed up with that bitch. Because she got out. Great ass! And you got your head all the way up it! Jesus. When I think of asses, woman's ass, something comes out of me. <laughs> that something comes out of me. Um, wow. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, it's still, the question is, who's in control of this narrative and who's in control of these aesthetic standards? And it still seems as though it's men, not women. Yeah, I definitely think that's right. And I mean, this sort of question of like, what is a great ass is, you know, it's in some ways, it's the question of the book, you know, yeah. what's a great ass and according to who? And, you know, that's an interesting moment because it's, of course, like, of course, men have been sexualizing women's butts for centuries. It's just a new, a kind of new kind of butt is getting very popular in the mid to late 90s. And it in that moment when all those interviewers are talking to Jennifer Lopez about her butt, it's like, it really has this feeling of like, they've They've never let themselves say it before. And in some ways they haven't because the, like those kinds of magazines, they didn't even use the word but until the late 90s. And most of women's magazines were doing what Sir Mix-a-Lot you know, says they were doing, which is they were trying to tell women how to have less of a butt and how to have a flat butt and a, a fit butt. So we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back with more. Heather Radke uh, is our guest today. Uh, I may have not have said she's an SAS journalist and contributing editor and reporter at uh, NYC's uh, WNYC's Radio Lab, teaches at Columbia University's Creative Writing MFA program. Her new book, I know I did mention this part anyway, is Butts, a Backstory. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more. Ready for these hips of mine. They may be designers, but they haven't designed jeans to fit your valentine they make women's clothes for the long and the lean i got too much but 
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. show without Spinal Tap. You knew I was going to inflict that on you. Uh, all right. So we are talking about Butts, apropos of Heather Radke's new book, Butts, A Backstory. Uh, Heather is still with us, but also joining us to talk about a, a unique problem uh, that has a solution. Uh, are Vincent Kucha and Alex Bartlett, the co-owners of Planet Pepper in NYC, where they create butt and hip pads for drag queens, cross-dressers, trans and cis women. Uh, and uh, they are both with us, I think. Uh, uh, Vincent Kucha, maybe you can get us going. Uh, I described in rough terms anyway what the business is at Planet Pepper. But tell us a little bit more about why this business exists. Why did it get started? Sure. Um, thank you for having us on, Colin. I really appreciate it. Um, Alex is here, too. And um, I could just give a little history of Planet Pepper. Uh, Basically, Alex and I started it in 2010, and um, we basically did it because we saw a need for drag queens to wear hip pads. Um, I always joke with people. I say, I, you know, at this point, maybe you're old enough to realize that men are actually different from women. And most people, of course, say yes, they do realize that. So when a man puts on a dress, he's got to have something to fill it out. Right. And so because dresses are made for women with hips and buttocks. And so a lot of drag queens for years didn't put on any hips or have anything to use to fill out the dresses. 
And we came along to try to provide that. Um, in the past, what a lot of drag queens did was they would cut up couch cushions and try to shape them in a way that would create an hourglass figure or the bottom half of an hourglass figure. Uh, and then there was the issue of trying to keep them in place. So you had these now cushions that you've cut up and you've got to now put them on your thighs and your, your hip bones, your pelvic. Uh, and then you've got to keep them there while you dance and move around. <laughs> and it became really, really difficult. But a lot of people did it, but it was very challenging. Uh, so we came along and we said, why don't we just take some foam, cut it up in a particular design that Alex came up with and put them in a, insert them into shorts and they will stay in place. They have the right shape. We also offered uh, two shapes, actually the hourglass the bottom of the hourglass and an apple bottom shape. Um, so, there's so, so many places I want to go here, but before I get to Alex, yeah. I want to just curl back around to you, Heather. Heather, sure. there's a sort of irony in what's being said here, right? Which is that, uh, I mean, uh, Vinny is, correctly saying uh, that when people who are not born as women want to dress up in women's clothes, uh, the clothes aren't necessarily cut right for them. But you've just been saying for 35 minutes that the clothes aren't cut right for women (laughs) either. So, so Heather, I want you to sort of react to that. I mean, there's sort of an oddity to this, right? Um, I mean, there are probably an awful lot of of cisgendered, you know, women who, who would want some of these products. Yeah. And I, th- I think, I think um, Alex and Vinny sell them to cisgender women too. And I think yes. part of what they're doing that's so, so exciting. And when I interviewed them for the book that I, I was just like such a pleasure to meet them and talk to them is that they, they think of gender in this really fluid and, and exciting way. And they're offering a way for all of us to kind of explode some of these categories and think of, I mean, also that, to think about fashion in a way that's not restricting, but actually kind of fun. Yeah, and, and so Alex, the fun is. I'll, I'll just let's build on that for a second. I mean, I don't go to a lot of drag shows, but when I'm going to drag shows, fun is you know I think sort of near somewhere near the top of the uh, menu, and you don't really think about drag queens as being anxious about their bodies or their body types, at least when they're out on stage. So in a way, one of the things I assume that you are selling really is confidence and happiness uh, for the person who's putting on the undergarments you're getting for them. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's that's how I think about it. I really think that you know, drag queens want to present, um, you know, a fantasy and something that's you know outrageous and fun. And um, our business has changed so much in ten years. Like we really started convincing New York drag queens that they needed these pads because, like you said, back in the '90s, you know, they wanted to look like the supermodels and you know, be have this very slim silhouette. And it's really changed. You know, like you said with Jennifer Lopez and Nicki Minaj and now Lizzo, you know, there's this whole rainbow of sizes and colors and shapes. And, and it's sort of magical to see like how people have really embraced different shapes and, you know, different silhouettes. And um, it's really kind of special. It's so much fun for us to just make a product that gives people confidence and makes them feel like they're presenting in whatever way they want to present. You know, we find that really special. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Vinny. Many, many customers come to us and go, I want to look like Kim Kardashian, you know, or I want to look like Kate Moss, or I want this. And I think there is a lot of anxiety over how they present on stage. Yeah, we have, we, we stay away from like, you know, people with pronouns, like 
words are very difficult. We don't want to say, you know, this is, you know, the best shape or this is how you should look or because it's yeah. really a personal thing. Like we really want to encourage, you know, when we talk to our customers, we really try to get a sense of who they are and how they want to present. And, you know, we have, Vinny has like a list of questions we ask now, you know, about, you know, how you want to present and what you do and do you perform or are you just dressing up to go out or are you going to a wedding? You know, and now we, we do have more and more um, cis women where we've got some products on our site and we're developing some things. We have, you know, women that just want to boost their confidence or, you know, women that have had, you know, corrective surgery or all kinds of things. Yeah. It's really, our business has gone in a direction that we never thought it would happen. And we're just, we're so proud to be part of it. Can I speak to that just for a moment, sure. Colin? Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that Alex and I, one of the reasons I really kind of like, came on board. I mean, these are all Alex designs, but one of the reasons I came on board was because, you know, in my family, my grandmother uh, was like an ironing board. She had no figure whatsoever. And she would joke about it and talk about it nonstop. And she would say that she would go into Macy's or Bloomingdale's or Saks, buy a dress, and then immediately take it to a dry cleaners and altered. And she would spend hundreds of dollars on the dress and then hundreds more just to get it altered to fit her right. Where on the other hand was my mother, who was obese, and by the time she was 35, 40, she just lost her figure. And it was something she always regretted and would wear these huge dresses to hide the fact that she had no figure. So when Alex came along with this idea, I just thought, oh my God, I wish my grandmother and my mother were still alive. They would have loved this item. And that's when we also started thinking about cis women. And at that point, I also started getting a lot of emails from women who said, I have no figure and I'm going to a wedding. And I know my cousin's going to make fun of me. And I just want to look good. Yeah. So, Heather, as, uh, as they're talking, I'm realizing there's kind of an interesting connection here that spans a little bit more than 100 years. Uh, and, and there's also kind of a tension between what do you do to achieve whatever it is that you're being told you need to achieve? And so certainly 80s, 90s, there's this ethos of, well, you should have buns of steel. You should fix your buns. You should, Suzanne Summers wants you to get a butt master mm-hmm. right away and, and fix yourself. Um, and, and, you know, Heather, on the other hand, the, the other option is, particularly if, if you don't even think that's a realistic thing for you to do, is to do what these gentlemen are talking about doing, which is getting things that will help you look the way you're supposed to look. But there's a long tradition of that. And we should spend just a couple of minutes, Heather, on the bustle uh, in, in mm-hmm. the late 19th century, because that's kind of, in a way, one of the ancestors of what we're talking about now. Yeah, so the the bustle, I mean, it's it's it is and it isn't. The bustle is a, a super interesting undergarment. It's was very popular at the end of the 19th century. And basically it's like a fake butt that you would tie on. And they they were made with like springs and newspapers that you stuffed into your pet like your underwear. Um and I had a question when I was I first heard about this. I mean, I I'd sort of known that this was a thing because I'd like I really like period movies, but I was when I really started to think about it, I was like, what a weird trend because it was a really dramatic silhouette. Um, and so I I looked into the history of the trend and kind of why it became so popular. And there is this theory that um, 
that the silhouette of the bustle is in conversation with the popularity of Sarah Bartman and the performances that that she did in London, and that to some extent these the women wearing the bustle were, um, you know, they were sort of trying to echo that body and sort of in some sense like look like that, but you know they were also taking it on and taking it off in a in a gesture that's very. I think a really important gesture in the history of cultural appropriation. So, I mean, what, what Vinny and Alex are doing is a little different than that. I think, you know, like they're the, the, the work that they're doing is kind of more about gender and about the play in a way that's like a little different than the kind of cultural appropriation gesture of somebody wearing the bustle or like when Miley Cyrus put on her fake butt in, in 2013. Um, yeah, we we haven't even, and we probably yeah, we won't even be getting to twerking. I don't think, um, but it's there, uh, and we know that it exists. And and you know, to that point, um, uh, Alex, you know, I mean, another group of people who obviously, in a very achingly poignant way, uh, are going to be interested in what you have to offer are trans uh, persons, and particularly probably people you know recently transitioning or currently transitioning. Right? Suddenly, you're in a situation where you have to think about a whole bunch of things that you know, weren't maybe top of mind in the past. And I wouldn't once again imagine that the things that are available through Planet Pepper would be very important to at least some of those people. Um, absolutely. We have a lot of uh, transgendered people that we like to work with. And um, we offer products, you know, our padding goes from one inch up to, I've made up to eight inches for like Cirque du Soleil kind of people. So we really, we try to offer a really wide range of things kind of for whatever, you know, your needs are, whether that's a daily thing or a entertainment thing or a medical thing. Um, but absolutely, we really don't cater to, we started with really, you know, I started making costumes in my apartment and for mostly drag queens and entertainers. And I realized that these people really needed the the body underneath to make the outfit look right. So we, we transferred to start making it the the bodies and now I don't make the costumes anymore. It's it's really been a, a strange business. <laughs> it is a strange business. But Vinny, uh, and sort of the, probably be the last part of this segment here, but um, it's also interesting because, you know, so much of what we've, we read in Heather's book and part of the conversation we're having with Heather are about constraints placed on people over the decades, you know, or uh, arbitrarily chosen standards of beauty and, you know, what is calipigious uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, it seems as though your business is a little bit more about rebellion and also uh, about kind of relaxing into a state of joy and defying whoever it is who's setting these standards. Absolutely, Colin. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, we were talking, we've been talking about this so long and since the nineties and mix a lot, um, this idea of, of a huge, butt is now become a fantasy for a lot of people. And it's taken a while, but curves are back and people want them and shape is back and, Big butts are back in. Uh, I even find that even, you know, we even saw with um, uh, not, uh, what was it? It's all, it's all in the bass. Who, who's the one woman who sang that song? That would be Megan Trainer. You'll be hearing her right. at the very end of this show, but yes. Okay, great. So I'm sorry. I blew your thunder. That's okay. But uh, yeah, I think so. We, we, this is about rebellion. It is about looking bigger than usual. What we are finding, Alex and I are finding is that the trend is going even bigger. A lot of professional queens from Tina Burner to 
to uh, Kendall Gender are going bigger and bigger and bigger to the three inch and the four inch pads that Alex I were, uh, that Alex was referring to earlier. I, I get emails all the time. I want it bigger, and I was like, okay, how about our three inch? How about our four inch? You know, and that's what they want. Yeah, and it, but on the other hand, we have many cis women for medical reasons. Uh, just recently, uh, I was telling uh, Betsy there was a woman recently who emailed me. She said I had a tumor in my buttock, and they removed it, and it left me completely uneven. Mm. And I'm just sad to go out in the world. And uh, so we made her a special pad that would even out her backside. So it's liberating, but it's, it, there's a rebellion element. But for many people, it's liberating. Oh, I definitely think so. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Uh, yep. And we're going to talk uh, in the final segment about uh, Brazilian butt lifts and what happens uh, after those. Uh, but we've uh, very much enjoyed talking to Heather Radke. Uh, her book is Butts, uh, a Backstory. Uh, and uh, to our two new friends, uh, Vincent Kucha uh, and Alex Bartlett from Planet Pepper in New York City. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We are back. We are fortunate to have as our technical producer today the calmest person in the world, and she needs to be. Uh, Kat Pastor uh, is our technical producer. This episode was produced by Betsy Kaplan. Before there was a Lily Tyson, there was a Betsy Kaplan. She was the senior producer of our show. She's now senior producer emeritus. Uh, Lily Tyson is, uh, of course, uh, keeping a watchful eye over all of us, and I'm sure Jonathan McPants has done something in connection with this show as well. So thanks to all of you and anybody else I'm leaving out. Um, all right. So um, in 2014, 2014 was uh, often called the year of the butt, and a lot of things were going on in the Kardashian-verse. And, uh, and another thing that was going on was the, there was a sharp uptick all of a sudden, something called a BBL. A BBL is a, a Brazilian butt lift. Uh, this is if you want to be more, more Kardashian or J-Lo-like, you do this procedure in which a surgeon uses liposuction to remove fat from the patient's stomach, lower back, and thighs, injects it into the butt. Uh, it's very dangerous. Uh, it is uh, considered by the American Society of Plastic Surgeons to be worth a, having a warning because if it's not done right, uh, an incompetent surgeon or a less than competent surgeon uh, can inject fat into major blood vessels running from the legs to the torso and lungs, which can cause a fatal embolism. So uh, approach the BBL with great care. Uh, but there's also the question of sort of what happens after the BBL. And this is where our final guest comes in. Shomara Garcia is CEO and founder uh, of Muneca, Muneca, I guess, uh, Private Care Recovery Services, uh, Services. She's a licensed massage therapist. Welcome to our conversation. And, and tell us what it is that you do. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> um, so, okay. So I've been in business for six years now. And I started off with doing companion care where a lot of people fly into Miami to get well Brazilian butt lift surgery amongst other cosmetic surgeries. And so, um, so I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but the Miami scene has made it very, very affordable to get these 
procedure done. And how we've done that is by taking out the whole aftercare process. So they typically will do someone's surgery and then send them on their merry way. And they're left to um, find care, massages, supplies, everything on their own. So that's where my company comes in. I help with educating on the procedure as well as the aftercare process. And, um, you know, I have a team, we come in, we provide the care, we we do their massages after surgery, we educate them, answer any of their questions, help them with their daily activities, how to get dressed, what to eat, and so forth. So uh, what what do you see? I, I, my, my understanding is you're not working so much with uh, BBL patients at, at this point, but when, when you have been working with them, what do you see mm-hmm. in terms of the aftercare that they need that tells you something about this process? Oh, yeah. So they have so many questions. So I don't know exactly what happens internally in their brain, but it's like after surgery, after someone gets surgery, it's like they're completely lost. And it'll be like a little question like, what can I eat today? Or how do I put on my Faha garment, which is a compression garment? Um, It's like these little things that would, I mean, I don't know, because I'm in the field, I'll find it like so like mind boggling. I'm like, oh, that's that's easy. But, you know, for some people, it's they're completely clueless. Um, But um, so typically what I see is that after surgery, they come out, they're under anesthesia, they're very groggy or sometimes they're they're just very out of it. And, um, you know, they need help with eating. They need help with walking. They need help with making sure they stay hydrated, um, making sure that they're not putting any pressure on the buttocks area. Uh, making sure they're being positioned in the right way in the bed or on a couch or where, whatever it is that they plan to get comfortable on. So, um, yeah, it, it mm-hmm. just sounds like like a few years ago I had a knee replacement and I got a lot mm-hmm. of aftercare. There was like a whole discharge plan for me and PT people coming <laughs> yeah. to PT people coming to my house and all kinds of stuff and lots of follow up phone calls. And how am I doing? It sounds like a lot of that's kind of missing from this equation, at least in, in your market. Oh, absolutely. So there has been a lot of service providers, private care companies who have stepped in to pick up on that, the lack of uh, aftercare. Um, and I don't know if you knew somebody, we're going to run out of time here and I'm sorry for that, but if you knew somebody no who worries. was considering a BBL, what would you tell them? How would you tell them to prepare themselves? Oh my goodness. I would say do your research because I find that the ones who don't and they hire us for massages and when I come and I service them, it's like they verbally vomit all over me, meaning they're so lost. They need every question answered because they didn't get questions from their doctor or their questions answered from the doctor. They literally have no clue on what to do, what to eat, what to expect. And so they're like begging for mercy as for me to answer their questions for them. You know, I I answer what I can. I know I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. So I can only say but so much. But I do have the experience and the knowledge to be able to provide them with the proper information. So, um, you know, I would say do your research. Make sure you research from the pre-op to the surgery itself to the aftercare. Right. Because it's a lot. It is a lot. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Uh, Shamara Garcia is CEO and founder uh, of Muñeca uh, Private Care Recovery Services, licensed massage therapist as well. Uh, thanks yeah. to all who listened. Thanks to all who helped put the show together. Uh, and now get your butts out of here.